Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we've got some catching up to do on the initiatives out of the early days of the Trump administration. Uh, I'm going to start you broadly. You were, throughout the campaign, fairly cautious about Trump, although I think that got overlooked in some quarters. But you always sounded this note that he had his finger on something real, but that it was sufficiently inchoate and, and he had enough of a tendency for recklessness that it was entirely possible that he could blow it up. And now that we have a few weeks of his presidency to judge by, how does the reality align with what your expectations were? Well, I'm not surprised and I'm not disappointed. I just think that he's schizophrenic in the sense that all of his critics who said he would you know, appoint wishy-washy Supreme Court judges or his appointments would be to the cabinets, these would be mediocre. I knew that wouldn't happen. I think he was going to, he was genuine in his agenda, but that personally he wasn't going to stop tweeting and getting into personal feuds and going off in tangents with the apprentice or Ivanka Trump's fashion and jewelry line. And so that's what you're, it is what it is, if I could use that stereotype proverb. There's probably no other Republican that could have got elected by appealing to these blue state Democrats and former or current union members, and then who, who would be as reckless or bold or audacious enough to get this agenda on immigration and probably Obamacare tax reform regulation, but his own personality comes with it. Now, where, what is it, where does that leave us? And it means that the Democrats are turning up the heat so high as the way Hillary did in the deba- first debate trying to goad and bait him and then hoping that he would, you know, he, today he kind of attacked uh, McCain. He got in this thing with Blumenthal, both senators left and right. And the goal is that he's going to become too creepy or eerie or an embarrassment for moderate Republicans in the House, but especially the Senate, so that a Lindsey Graham, for example, or a Susan Collins or a John McCain just says, you know, I, I, I can't be with this guy. And then they lose that thin margin in the Senate. And once they do that, they have no ability to enact change. You wrote recently that Trump would do well to heed the ancient Greek aphorism, make haste slowly. Superficially, that sounds like an oxymoron. Explain what you mean by that. Well, Augustus was a revolutionary, and he changed the republic to the principate. But what he understood was during that transition – He was going to destroy a lot of careers that were indebted to other rival triumvirs of the past and various interests that were not on board with him. So what he did was he essentially reformulated what it was to be Roman, but he disarmed his critics by giving them jobs, by talking one way, not necessarily disingenuously. And my point with Trump is that when he does an executive order such as the the immigration one, then all he has to do is say things like, I'm just picking up from Obama and I'm going to use the same seven countries he's targeted. Oh, and by the way, it was a great idea that Obama suspended immigration from Iraq. And oh, by the way, it doesn't apply to green green card holders or veterans. Oh, and by the way, uh, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of people come in. If he had just prepped the battlefield that way, then I think he would have avoided a lot of the problems. And he's got to do that with every single executive order, and he's got to realize that he's a revolutionary, or at least he's trying to bring us back to the center 
and because it's been so far left, that is revolutionary in itself. Well, to that point, Victor, and you mentioned this earlier, liberals have been almost uniformly hysterical about virtually everything that the Trump administration has done thus far. Um, there is a school of thought on the right that says because they're being so indiscriminate, because they can't differentiate the worthy fights from the rest, they're eventually just going to become background noise. In other words, if everything's a crisis, nothing's a crisis. Uh, are you that sanguine about it? Not really. I think the the Trump people, there's two views of it. The Democratic view is that we're going to nick him so many times that he's either going to bleed to death or he's going to go into some kind of epileptic fit and just melt down and say something really stupid or, you know, offensive, and that'll be the end of him. And the, re the Trump view is, as you articulated, that they're going to cry wolf so many times nobody's going to believe them or... Uh, on these issues so far, each one of them has had 51 plus percent. So as long as he sticks to public opinion, people do want a temporary ban or suspension on immigration from these seven countries. They do want the wall built. They do want to deport felons. They do want to bomb. He's, he's on the right side of the polls. So that's their view. As long as he stays on the right side of the polls, they're going to look ridiculous. But again, I think it's targeted the, the, the teeter-totter, the, the centrum or the fulcrum is the Republicans in the Senate and to a lesser extent his own cabinet people. So what he doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to get out in front of a, a sober and judicious guy like Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson or any of these appointments that just can't be a part of, you know, tweeting all night. And so he, what he needs to do is he needs to have the cabinet be the official spokespeople for each initiative as it applies to their domain of interest. And he's got to make sure that he keeps John McCain. So if John McCain says something kind of bad, I think, that the, the operation was botched, uh, then Trump doesn't need to get in a Twitter war with him, is what I'm saying. Because what that means is, emotions being what they are, on a key vote, as we saw almost happen with votes, he'll jump. And he can't afford that because he doesn't have a very big margin. Once, if he can... Be, if he can get these things through and he can get the economy up to 3% GDP or 4 and pick up five, six seats in the midterm, it won't matter. But he's not there yet. Victor, amongst a lot of people who agreed with President Trump on sort of the fundamentals of the immigration issue, there were those who still were very critical of the way that the administration sort of rolled out its executive orders on the immigration restrictions for uh, people from a handful of Muslim countries. I I'm wondering – how your diagnosis squares with that. Did you feel, as some of those people did, that fundamentally he had this basically right, but that they really sort of botched it on the execution, or at least the presentation, I Yeah, I think they did. No, no, I think that was right, and I've written to that effect, that all he had to do was say that I'm going to exempt green card holders, I'm going to exempt people who worked with U.S. Uh, forces in the Middle East, and then all he had to do was say he did later, post facto, but he could have in advance said, you know what, Barack Obama had a brilliant idea of targeting these seven countries for visa uh, scrutiny. We're going to do the same thing, only we're going to expand a little bit. And by the way, when he suspended immigration for a while from Iraq, that was really wise. We're going to, we're going to do that too. That was a great idea. We're going to work and elaborate on it. And had he done things like that, I don't think that uh, he would have disarmed the left. So he needs to think, whose ox is gored and how can I preempt the criticism? And we're going to have a big immigration fight 
when it, this applies to domestic illegal immigration because he's already said that he's going to target people first who have broken the law and maybe later who are not working if they're able-bodied. But he's not going to get into the dreamers and all that. And you can see that he's already put that on hold. So what would be the uh, – who would object to saying if you came here illegally and you broke or the law and committed a serious crime, then you should go back? Well, nobody's going to object to that. But what the left is going to do is they're going to say, oh, identity, fraud, fake – using a fake social security number, a DUI, those aren't really crimes, and they're already doing it with this case today in Arizona where a woman who was here illegally and committed a felony through falsification of federal documents, uh, or at least dossier and identity theft, that's not really bad. And that's something that they're going to have to think through very clearly and say to Americans, hey, if you willingly falsify a document and you sign your name or you assume an identity that's not your own, your career is essentially over with. Why would we favor people who had already broken the law coming here and apply a different standard to them that we don't with citizens? So if he does things like that and explicates, I think he's okay. But the left will try to put her on TV today. They already have. She's a sympathetic character. He needs to get to focus and say, this is not fair. She's a felon. Any other citizen who did this would be in jail. And so he's got to think in advance, I think. Even though we're removed now from those initial shock waves that accompanied the election, there is still an air of unreality around this for a lot of people. And the, the word that you hear them use quite often is unprecedented. I'm curious, as someone steeped in history, Victor, whether you think of it that way or do you see moments, whether modern or reaching back to antiquity, that put this one in context? Are there historical analogs to a Trump or even just to the spirit that he seems to have stirred? Well, let's be clear. We People are correct that we never had anybody without military or political experience become president. No office, no military rank. And then we've never had a Republican candidate that ran against not just the left, but the mainstream media and the Republican establishment. So if we just and, and then won, and won in a way that nobody ever imagined he could. So that's new. But throughout history, there have been people who everybody thought, because of their lack of experience, would, have be, would be terrible, but they turned out to be pretty good. And I'll give you a couple examples. The Emperor Claudius was considered a stuttering buffoon, and yet after the nightmare reign of Caligula, when they found him behind a curtain, when they needed an emperor, they stuck him there thinking he could be manipulated. turned out that he was probably one of the most successful, the Julio-Claudians, and because he had certain abilities that were not really well known until they had a chance to be manifested with supreme power, and that happens in history. Uh, Eisenhower was pretty much a mediocre staffer with MacArthur, a yes man, uh, lieutenant colonel, and then suddenly in the space of four years, he goes from colonel to four-star general, the most powerful man really in American military history, and he turned out to be pretty good. Nobody had that. Nobody ever thought that necessarily could be true. So we, we've seen things like this happen, happen a lot, and uh, I wouldn't count Trump out. Victor, one thing that we haven't talked much about thus far is the economy. We went through a long period of pretty anemic growth under the Obama administration. How central will improving that record be to Trump's success or failure? 
I think that's the whole key. Uh, Barack Obama was the first president since Herbert Hoover, who during his eight years never, or even four, four or eight, never achieved three percent uh, GDP growth per annum. Nobody's ever been that dismal before, and. All of these things that we're caught up with about Ivanka's uh, jewelry line or Blumenthal said this or McCain said that or Arnold is or that, that's all background noise if he can achieve 3 to 3.5 to 4% economic growth. Then all of a sudden these existential problems, tax reform, deregulation, uh, the debt, they start to be resolvable and people will get jobs, they won't be on government will save money because they won't be on unemployment or dependency and they'll be taxpayers. And remember when Reagan came in with Paul Volcker's just getting, you know, getting into full steam, we went into it. We were in a terrible leftover recession from Carter. And I remember 81, a man, a guy ran for assemblyman named Reagan. And uh, his last name was Vineyard, Reagan Vineyard. And Every farmer I knew got posters from this local race and put Reagan Vineyard in their vineyard because we were losing. We were in this recession, prices crashed, we were all broke. And then when the missile, uh, Pershing missile thing, and the Hollywood went crazy and said he was the day after, it's a nuclear winter, that nuclear winter phraseology became chic. And then suddenly Mondale was going to win. I, I remember that. They said, Walter Fritz Mondale, good-looking guy, young, traditional, moderate, liberal. And then what happened? We went from basically no economic growth in 82 to a little bit in 83. And then in 84, we had 7.5% GDP growth. And all of a sudden, it was morning in America. And people couldn't get, a, couldn't get enough of Reagan. If Trump can pull it off, then he will be like Reagan. But we're in a great experiment because, you know, we're all here at the Hoover Institution and we say that free market economics, deregulation, tax reform, psychological confidence in business people, that's going to make a difference. And now we're going to finally get get our wish. So it'll either happen or it won't. If Trump comes in, instead of saying, you didn't build that, he calls an airline executive and say, go to it. I'm going to lower your corporate taxes. I'm going to simplify the tax code. I'm going to get rid of Dodd-Frank. It's a business, and psychologically, people want to invest. We bring in $2 trillion back, and it works. Then Trump is a success, and all these things are incidental, not essential to his uh, character, these, these distractions. If it doesn't work, and we get mired at 1.5% or 2% GDP, then I don't think he's going to be in very good shape at all. So final question, Victor. You hinted at this a little bit earlier. The relationship between Trump and the broader Republican Party, this, is, this has always been something of a shotgun marriage. It seems like we're in this uneasy equilibrium right now between the White House on one side and the sort of more – I guess more conventional GOP forces, you know, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, choose whom you like. Is that sustainable or does one side end up changing the other here? I think actually Trump is in a better position than is um, the Republican establishment because he got elected in a way McCain and Romney could not following the Marcus of Queensbury rules and this multimillionaire status quo Republican. So I think Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and the establishment in the Congress understand that, that they would not have Gorsuch 
as a Supreme Court nominee. They would not be in the position of having the state legislature, the governorships, the, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and probably the Supreme Court without Donald Trump. And yet, they also know that they said this couldn't happen. So they have some liabilities. And so what I think is going to happen is they're going to try to nudge Trump and say, we are the guys that really uh, reify your economic dreams. We can get it through. We'll make you look good. And then it's just a question of holding their nose so that when he gets on Twitter, they're not embarrassed. If they can be mature enough to look at the goal line and put up with this stuff, I think it'll be a mutually beneficial relationship. All right. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classes Podcast. And in the meantime, remember to stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.